All right, everyone, well, why don't we go ahead and get started? Um, so I'm really excited today about today's talk. So uh, today we have Dr. Eduardo Costa here to speak with us. So he's a, a, a professor at the University of Sao Paulo. Um, he did his training in pulmonary critical care there and then did some amount of time here at, uh, in, in the States at MGH. Um, he's back in Brazil. Um, he's the first author of a paper that I was really impressed by and very interested in about mechanical power. It's a paper I sent to all of you guys that was in the Blue Journal recently on ventilator variables and mechanical power in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so I'm, I'm very excited to have him here today talking to us about this paper and about mechanical power. Um, Dr. Costa, thank you so much for joining us from Brazil. It's a pleasure to have you here today. I can't wait to hear your talk. Thank you, Andy. Um, good afternoon, everyone. It's my pleasure to be here and, uh, and so that we can talk about this concept, a relatively new concept of mechanical power. I'd like to thank Andy and, and, and also all of you for, for being here. So the idea, I have no conflicts of interest uh, related to this talk. The idea, my plan today was to talk about some like very basic concepts related to power, energy, like physical concepts and some pathophysiology surrounding those concepts. And then discuss a couple of papers and go deeper, more in depth in the paper that we published that then we just talked to you about uh, at the end of last year in the Blue Journal. So um, we could start by reviewing this uh, uh, the concept of mechanical power itself, this is the equation of mechanical power that I, I believe most of you have have seen. It was proposed uh, um, uh, in 2016 by Professor Luciano Gattinoni, uh, and it's a very big and, and, and difficult equation, as you can see. Um, it, but it, on the other hand, it was very uh, appealing uh, because it, it joins it puts together most of the variables that are thought to be related to, to the process of lung injury when the patient is being ventilated. So it takes into account respiratory rate, tidal volume, the elastance of the respiratory system, uh, the I to E ratio is related to flow, resistance, PEEP. So um, it's a, it's a, from the, it has a lot of biological plausibility. So. And because of that, I think it has gained a lot of acceptance. So even though it, it's hard to understand the equation because it's very long, uh, we can we can think of it um, as a at least the way he proposed as a measure of power, and we'll discuss uh, discuss that issue a bit better in the next slides. But the equation is composed of basically of two terms. One term is the respiratory rate, and this like very big big term. Uh, between curly brackets is the work of energy that's transferred from the ventilator to the patient. So, um, and this makes a lot of sense because, of course, uh, if you if you're damaging the lungs, you have to uh, you have to do that uh, through the transfer of energy. There is no other way you could do that. But uh, it also matters how how often you do that to the lungs. So, if you think like if you're if you have like a if you smash your, your finger with a hammer, it, 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 it must be more injurious if you do it several times as compared, as compared if, to, to a situation in which you do it only once. So uh, let's dig a bit more into this equation. So it's much easier to understand the equation if you look at it in, in, a, in a graphical way. Before we do that, just 
there's this uh, website. It, it was published in the Experimental Intensive Care Medicine in which you can plug in most of the variables uh, that you have at the bedside, like tidal volume, peak inspiratory pressure, inspiratory flow, plateau pressure, uh, peak respiratory rate, and I2E ratio, and you get power. So um, you could do that. Um, so it, if you hit calculate, and it gives you driving pressure, elastance, resistance, total mechanical power, and also the components of mechanical power that we will, we will talk about uh, in more detail. So this is the graphical representation. I think it, it helps a lot to understand the concept. This is a pressure volume curve. So on the y-axis, you have lung volume. On the x-axis, airway pressure. So if you remember from high school, energy or work is pressure times volume. So it's um, uh, the energy transfer from the ventilator to the patient is actually the area towards the y-axis. So this is the energy transferred uh, each breath. If you multiply that by respiratory rate, you get power, mechanical power. So and we, we can actually uh, think of three different components to this uh, total mechanical power. The first one is this parallelogram. It's actually resistive mechanical power because it's related to the, to the resistive pressure to overcome, uh, for the flow to, over, to overcome like in the tracheal tube and, and mostly the large airways. Then there's this triangle, which is related to an elastic pressure the, the energy that that you you have to transfer to the lung to inflate the lung from peak to plateau pressure that's the the elastic dynamic pressure and there's also another another energy or power which is the stat, it's a static power because it, it's it's not cyclic it's not cyclic and you transfer it to the patient only once once you change the peak that power is, is is stored in the lung and you don't have to do it every cycle. So in the equation of power, there's also a constant, which is this 0 0.098. It's just, it's basically to, for unit conversion, for units that we use at the, at the bedside. So before we, we, we talk about power and its, like its implications from the pathophysiological point of view, I, I would like to discuss uh, for just um, to, to point out that actually the, the, the concept mechanical power, the physical concept is not very precise. And I like, I like this editorial uh, from um, uh, Dr. Santini in which he made a, an, an analogy uh, with flow. So let's start uh, thinking of flow. Flow is the rate of air delivery. So we all know that. It's given in liters per minute, for example. So uh, in mechanical power should be the rate of energy transfer, and it could be given in joules per second or joules per minute or whatever energy uh, per time unit you, you want to give it. So when you think there's a different concept, and it's very intuitive for us, which is minute volume. Uh, minute volume, it's how, how much air did you transfer to the patient in a minute. It's also given in liters per minute. But um, it, it's very, of course, very different from flow, which is uh, the, it's more like, it, it reflects more like a strain rate, not the cumulative transfer. 
And, and what Professor Gattinoni described is actually much more similar to minute volume than it is to flow. So the real concept of power would be the rate of energy transfer. What he, had to, he has described is like the cumulative energy transfer each minute. So and, and that makes a lot of, of difference because you, uh, you can deliver a lot of energy uh, and very slowly, or you could, you could do it otherwise. You could, you could deliver very little energy, but very fast. For example, we have like one big, very, very big uh, uh, breath, like a, a recruitment maneuver, even if, and especially if you do it very fast. It, it, of course, it can be harmful to the lung. Uh, it can even induce bare trauma, even if it's only once. So um, the concepts are very different. But uh, we'll talk about the power in, in, in the literature. It, this has, uh, has gained acceptance, the term power. So we'll, we'll call it power from now on. But uh, it's, not, it's not really the, what represents the real concept. So um, energy transfer times uh, the respiratory rate. That's, that's what power is. But uh, do you, is energy transfer always bad? Um, uh, so, um, and I'm trying, I will try to convince you that not necessarily. You, you, you can think of energy transfer, there are like the two extremes of energy transfer from the physical point of view. They can be totally elastic. It's, it basically doesn't exist in nature. Uh, but th what that means is that it's a conservative process. So once you release, you apply a, a you apply a force to, 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 to the lung, for example, or to a spring, and it deforms. When we, you remove that force, it goes back to its original state. What that means, what that implies, is that nothing has changed in, it, in its microstructure. So it was totally adapted to, to be deformed the way it was. So that's a perfectly elastic uh, deformation. On the other extreme of the spectrum, there is the, a plastic deformation, uh, which uh, it, you, you, you apply a force and the structure or um, the, the body never returns to its original state. So it means that you did something to its underlying microstructure. Uh, the, for, the, the energy that you, that you transferred caused some damage or injury to the microstructure. And the lungs are somewhere in between. They are much more elastic than plastic but they're, they're viscoelastic or elastoplastic. So that's what, what we call the lens. And I really like this paper from Professor Jeremiech from the 1950s. And he studied, uh, he studied volunteers. This is the, the pressure volume loop of vol volunteers. On the y-axis is ophageal pressure. On the, the, on the x-axis, on the y-axis, lung volume. So when you have like a small tidal volume around 500 mils, uh, you can see that the the patient or the volunteer breathes in, and when he breathes out, the 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 expiratory limb is basically on top of the inspiratory limb. So this means that uh, the it, the lung returned to its original stage. Um, and he said that the lungs might be said to be nearly ideal elastic behavior when they are submitted to small strains. So that's, that explains why um, we transfer energy from the moment we are born until the moment we die to the lungs, and the lungs do not necessarily get sick or damaged or, injure, or injured. 
but what happens when you do larger tidal breadths? So when you do, for example, a tidal breadth of over 1.5 liters, when the lung deflates in the expiratory limb, the lung volume is higher at the same pressure than it was during inspiration. So what that means is that the lung has hysteresis in this area between the two limbs, the inspiratory limb and the expiratory limb. This area means that energy was dissipated in the lungs. Um, and, and by that, we mean that somehow the structure of the lung was changed because of the high lung inflation. We'll talk about that um, later. Another very important uh, uh, concept from material, from engineering or physics is material fatigue. So this means that when, whenever you do, you deform a body, if you do it um, often enough, it will fracture. At some point, it will fracture. So the, there's a, a very known rule called Miner's Rule it, that, that tells us that the, the time it takes depends on how often you do it, the times it takes to, to fracture. So, uh, and this is our own experience when you, do, uh, when you do this to a paperclip. So you know that um, after a few movements, it will, it will break. Same thing happens to, to the lungs. So this is a nice paper that was published in the, the year 2000 showing how much edema the lungs formed when they were submitted to very low pressures at a respiratory rate of 20, and then uh, high pressures of 35 peak pressures with the very low respiratory rates, and with the same pressures at a higher respiratory rate, you see that there's much more edema. And this shows, there are other papers that also show that the, the respiratory rate matters. So going back to our uh, pressure volume curve and our mechanical power definition, uh, um, from my perspective uh, and also from the, that editorial from Dr. Santini, the, the idea is that none of these areas of mechanical power are really uh, our variable of interest. The ideal measure uh, of risk of injury to the lungs is probably the, the area, the energy dissipated during each tidal breath, uh, which unfortunately is very, very hard to measure at the bedside. So this would be, if we could, we probably would like to, to use this area to compute the mechanical power. So, um, Let's talk about uh, a little bit about where this comes from, where the hysteresis come, come from, comes from. So we all know that in the lungs we have a very sophisticated system called the surfactant system. It's basically their phospholipids, their, their molecules that are very stable when they are at the surface between uh, liquid and air because they, they have these hydrophobic chains and this hydrophilic head. So that lowers a lot the, the, the surface tension, which can be from like pure water is like 72 millinewtons meter. When you have a good surfactant system, it can go down to as little as one to two. 
So this uh, paper, this is the same paper that I showed before in the 50s. It, it reproduced a finding that had been shown by Dr. Fonniergaard in, in 1929. So basically what, what he, uh, Professor Jeremy did was he had uh, lungs of dogs filled with air. So this is a PV curve of a, of a large inflation you can see that uh, there's a very large hysteresis here, hysteresis area. Um, and when he degassed those lungs and changed air, uh, he replaced air with liquid. So when he, when he inflated the lungs now with liquid, with no air, to the same volume that he had inflated before the lungs, he showed basically two things. Uh, one is that most of the elastic recoil, because if you if you look at the curve, the 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 slope of this curve is the compliance of the of the lung. So um, he showed that the compliance actually increased, the slope increased, uh, and, and this means that the, most of the elastic recoil of the lungs are related to the surface to the surface tension. And the other very nice thing that he showed is that the hysteresis, the area between the two limbs of the curve, actually went away, basically disappeared when you removed the air from the lungs. So what this means is that most of the hysteresis under normal conditions are, is due to the surfactant system. The surfactant system can appear uh, basically in three different states. They can, it, it can be con uh, condensed, so this is very effective in lowering the surface tension. And when the lung expands, so the concentration of these molecules reduces on the surface, so it goes to the expanded state, and it, when, when the lung inflates even more, it goes to the gorgeous state. So, and this is important because during a large tidal breath, what happens is the lungs go from the condensed, when, when they're at low lung volumes, to the gorgeous stage at end inspiration after the large breath. But uh, be, because now there are some spaces between the surfactant molecules, there's recruitment of surfactant from the subface to the surface. Uh, we have stores of surfactant uh, in the subphase. We also have stores of surfactant in the lamellar bodies. And so what happens is that surfactant becomes like this. So in the expiratory limb, there's much more surfactant. And, and this would be okay if you wouldn't let the lungs to go down to, to a very low lung volume at the end of expiration again, because when you do that, you lose a lot of surfactant because surfactant, uh, it bends, it breaks, and it's expelled from the lungs after a large breath. Um, luckily for us, we have uh, stores of surfactant in the lamellar bodies. We also have uh, cont a continuous production of surfactant by pneumocytes type 2, and, and that helps to a certain extent. There's a limit to that. It, it helps restore the surfactant system uh, after after the surfactant has been depleted. So when we do experiments, for example, in normal lungs in rabbits, after a few hours, like five hours, the, the, the compliance of the lung has returned to normal, even if even if we removed all the surfactant that was there before. Now let's um, return to the 
let's think about uh, what the if there is a surrogate for that measure that we we would like to measure that that variable that we would like to measure which is hysteresis and in the 70s dr hildebrand showed uh, he studied the the areas of hysteresis in the, under different conditions, different inflations, and different expiratory type, expiratory lung volumes, and he found out that actually, when he did that, he found out that the the variable that was most closely related to the area of hysteresis was actually driving pressure, driving pressure and tidal volume both actually. So um, that's very important for the concept that we are going to talk about next. So um, th this concept that driving pressure matters a lot makes a lot of sense because it's a, a, it's a very good marker of the adequacy of the tidal volume to the size of the baby lung. Um, so if you look at these, these two CAT scans, these are from the same patient, a patient with uh, pneumocystosis. And he, the patient had a high PEEP here with very little lung collapse. At a lower PEEP, he had a lot of collapse. More than 50% of the lung was collapsed in the, in the, the right-hand figure. So it, it makes a lot of sense that um, uh, tidal volume and the consequences of applying a certain tidal volume should be different if you apply to a lung that's totally inflated as opposed to a lung that's more than half closed. So this is the idea of, of sizing of the baby lung. And uh, of course, uh, it's very hard to transfer patients to the, to the CAT scan and, and measure the amount of lung that's aerated. But um, what Professor Gattinoni had proposed in, 19, in the 1980s was that there's a bedside variable, very easy to obtain, which is the static compliance of the respiratory system that has a nice correlation with the size of the baby lung, with the, with the, with the area or the volume of the, of the inflated lung. So and that's the idea um, um, that we, we propose to actually scale tidal volume, not anymore to the ideal body weight, but, all, but to, the, to a measure that captures how much aerated lung, is, aerated lung is the patient has right now. The, the tidal volume according to ideal body weight was, was uh, something that was proposed in, in 2000. You all know the paper from the ARDS network. Uh, the ARMA study, and they proposed that it, the tidal volume should be scaled to the ideal body weight because, of course, uh, patients with different sizes uh, have different uh, sizes of their lungs as well. But what this, uh, uh, what this fails to accomplish is to deliver a tidal volume which is uh, suitable for the size of the baby lung. So when you look at the, at the compliance of the respiratory system, even though the size of the patient is the same, the size of the healthy lung is the same, uh, the compliance lowers a lot when the lung is collapsed and sick. So if you apply tidal volume according to the, to the size of the baby lung and you, you use compliance as a surrogate for, for that, what you obtain is actually, you all know that compliance is tidal volume over driving pressure. So the tidal volumes cancel out and you obtain driving pressure. 
So um, this uh, has been confirmed in a study by uh, Dr. Q. Merlo in 2016. He included uh, 150 patients uh, in the CAT scan. He measured their baby lungs and compared to uh, several different variables, actual body weight, which was what uh, guided the tidal volume before the year 2000. And there is very poor correlation. When he looked at the scatter against ideal body weight, it's a bit better, but also with a lot of scatter. When you plot lung stress against ideal body weight, it also has a lot of scatter. And driving pressures, it's, it's better. It's not perfect, but it's the one that shows a bet, the best correlation among those variables. So this was behind uh, the paper that we published in 2015 in the New England. We basically, we used all the, the available information that we had from the, the previous ICT, RCTs until then. So it's uh, around 3,500 patients. And um, basically what we did was we adjusted for many of the potential confounders and in the multivariable analysis we showed that driving pressure was the variable more strongly correlated with outcome um, among the, the ventilatory variables. And um, as a, a visual aid to that interpretation, we created three graphs. We divided patients into quintiles, so of roughly 600 patients in every quintile, and they were um, stratified in a way such that their peak values were the same, so these are the white bars over the five different strata, and the, their plateau pressures would increase progressively. Um, and because of that, driving pressure would also increase progressively. And when we looked at what happened to their um, adjusted mortality rates, uh, it increased. And that's, that was no surprise to anyone because um, the concept that plateau pressures were associated with mortality was already uh, very strong back then. But then we, we did a different stratification in which PEEP increased and photo pressure also increased progressively, such, such that driving pressure remained constant. And when we looked at mortality, it didn't, it didn't change. And finally, we did a third stratification in which PEEP increased but plateau pressure remained constant, such that driving pressure decreased and mortality fell progressively. So this set of three conditions when taken together suggests that driving pressure was more closely related to mortality than PEEP or plateau. So, and this makes a lot of sense um, uh, because uh, uh, biology tends to adapt very well to slow changes, such as those imposed by PEEP. Um, and because plateau pressure incorporates uh, in its value the PEEP itself, so it makes sense that only the cyclic portion of it is the more related to the harm. So this is, um, this is the main finding of the paper, that um, mortality, adjusted mortality rate is very strongly correlated with, with the driving pressure. When, when you look at the, the ranges in tidal volumes that you, that down here, so in, in this um, 
to the left-hand portion of the graph, you have, for example, tidal volumes that are as high as 7.5. And in the higher mortality rates, you have tidal volumes as low as 5.7. So even though in a given patient, tidal volume and driving pressures are, of course, mathematically linked by the elastic of the, of the respiratory system, um, uh, when you when you join different patients, some patients will have a very high driving pressure, even if they have low tidal volume. So the driving pressure seems very reasonable way to think of a a uh, adequate normalization of tidal volume considering the baby lung. So the, this paper of driving pressure was published in 2015 and. Uh, the following year, 2016, Professor Gattinoni published his paper proposing uh, the mechanical power equation as a variable that could, as a measure of, uh, of a variable that he could unify all the potential causes of, of lung injury. So in, it was basically a theoretical construct, and um, in, in his formula, so it's, this is this conclusion is direct is derived directly from the formula. Respiratory rate uh, would have so if you think of the effect of PEEP on the on the mechanical power. So if you have respiratory rate would have uh, roughly five times the effect of PEEP, and driving pressure and tidal volume would have roughly 6.5 times. So it's fixed because of the of the theoretical. Uh, way that he proposed the formula. So these effect sizes are, relative effect sizes are fixed. So this concept has, uh, and just keep that in mind because we'll come back to this, to this idea later on. Uh, this concept of mechanical power has been tested like several times. Um, for example, in this paper by uh, uh, Dr. Serpanetto, in, they included over 7,000 patients, and they show that mechanical power was associated with mortality, especially at value, values above 20 joules per minute. Uh, um, there have been many papers, including uh, these are all uh, during the COVID pandemic. So in these values, uh, around 20 keep coming back, even though there's been a lot of, of uh, discussion uh, uh, around that that maybe also the mechanical power would need, would require some sort of normalization. So um, I won't talk about these papers. I would like to briefly discuss now two papers uh, and, and then we, we will finish by discussing in a little bit more depth the paper that we published. So the first one is the paper by Tona and colleagues. Um, they studied uh, over uh, 1,200 patients in this publication from three different uh, randomized control trials from the ARDS network database. So they kind of reproduced the double stratification procedure that we had uh, published in the New England. So the, the graph even looks similar. And um, um, so this is a graphical way to, to understand the multivariable uh, analysis. So, and, and what they found is that at fixed values, so the, the dark bars is driving pressure and the gray bars is power. So when they stratify around 200 patients in each uh, quintile, um, so at, at constant values of driving pressure, 
and increasing values of power, he showed that mortality would increase progressively. And when he stratified uh, patients differently such that driving pressure would increase, but mechanical power would stay constant, he found that mortality still increased and it was also significant. So what he suggested, uh, what, what these findings suggest is that the two variables, the two are complementary in some sort of way. They have additional information even when you consider one of them, this, the other still brings some information in terms of uh, predicting death. Um, the other paper uh, is from Dr. Schaefer uh, uh, from Boston. So it's, uh, it's partly about one component of power uh, um, that has been questioned repeatedly, this elastic power, the elastic component. It, it's actually a fixed component. When, when you apply PEEP, it, it, if you think of it right, uh, you, the PEEP is applied uh, only once and it's changed very rarely. So uh, it doesn't make much sense that you multiply the energy stored in the lung uh, by respiratory rate because it was transferred, that energy was transferred only once. It either was absorbed and uh, dissipated to some extent or not, but uh, it doesn't make sense to multiply by the respiratory, uh, it doesn't make sense to me. So what they studied was exactly this. They were trying to understand whether this component, this rectangle, the power related to, to the peak, uh, was uh, was important or not for the prediction of power, prediction of, of clinical outcomes. So they computed in the pressure volume curves, um, and they also did, so they, they separated the, the two components and they looked at just the dynamic component with, which they called uh, the driving power, and they also looked at a so these are, these, this is a, a um, um, post hoc uh, study on the on the EPVEN trial. So they had esophageal pressures from these patients. So he also looked at the transpulmonary driving power, which uh, makes a lot of sense because the chest wall uh, shouldn't be related to the to the potential of, of lung damage of the mechanical ventilator. So in what they found is that the total power had a worse prediction and it was even, even not significant than driving power when you excluded, excluded that portion related to PEEP and driving power was equivalent to the lung directed driving power when you exclude the portion of the chest wall. Um, and this also makes a lot of sense because the components of the chest wall, even when the patient is very sick and even when the patient is obese, they're, it's basically constant. So it's, uh, it takes, uh, a, a, for example, uh, a, a, it, it takes a lot, a lot of, of pressure in the, in the abdomen to change the compliance of the chest wall. So, um, so now going to our patient, this, is, uh, this was basically the, the motivation behind our study. We, we wanted to, to assess the value of each mechanical power component, and also to assess whether a more simple model uh, would suffice, in which we looked at only the variables that were 
available at, at the bedside. So we included uh, patient level data from all the patients that we had previously included in the driving pressure paper and also included patients from um, a more recently published trial on lung recruitment. This was over 1,000 patients. It was also an RCT and also some patients from the MIMIC cohort. So patients were basically around 55 years old. They had moderate to severe ARDS, average peak values of around uh, 11 centimeters of water, tidal volume of seven, driving pressure of 15. So this is very similar to the values that we had, that we had in the driving pressure paper and respiratory rate of, of 25. Um, we studied power. This, has been, had, this was shown uh, after Gattinoni proposed the definition that power, uh, this unit is wrong, is joules per minute per kilogram of ideal body weight. So we, we did that, that normalization uh, improves the predictive ability of power. So, um, and we decomposed the power, mechanical power in, into its three components. The elastic static, this is related to PEEP. The elastic dynamic, it's related to driving pressure and also the resistive components. We, we first tested whether the, like, Single and simple ventilatory variables, respiratory rate, tidal volume, driving pressure, PEEP, uh, and plateau pressure were or not significantly associated with mortality after adjusting for potential confounders. So it was like the paper in the New England. They, this was adjusted uh, for, for age, underlying disease severity, PF ratio, compliance, and etc. So we found that uh, only respiratory rate and, and Driving pressure were significantly associated with, with survival for mortality, actually. We, th we then tested uh, whether the three additive power components, the elastic dynamic, elastic, static, and resistive components were associated with mortality. And what we found was that only the, just like uh, Dr. Schaefer had shown the elastic dynamic component was associated with, with outcome. Total power was very strongly associated with outcome, but from the three components, only the elastic dynamic was related. And uh, we, we also proposed a, a, a variable based on the effect sizes that we found of driving pressure and respiratory rate. So if, we, if you look at um, this variable, uh, uh, this is very easily obtained at the bedside. It has equivalent uh, predictive ability as compared to power in, uh, in terms of, of, of uh, predicting death. So um, this was very strongly associated with mortality. And when you took the two variables together into account, uh, each one of them retained additional uh, information. So. There is, they are complementary in some, to some extent. So in this four to one uh, ratio came from the empirical data itself. We, when we, in, in, our, in our analysis, we found that for each uh, centimeter of water of driving pressure is equivalent to four breaths per minute. So this is very, very interesting because it has a very 
it's very practical and you can use that at the bedside. For example, if you're trying to increase the lung protection, um, if you uh, if you try to decrease tidal volume or, or or driving pressure by one centimeter of water, and it, because you did that, you decrease tidal volume, so the patient would uh, would uh, the C patient CO2 would increase. So if you don't want his CO2 to hear his or her, C her CO2 to increase, you would have to increase the respiratory rate. So if because of your tidal volume reduction, you would have to increase your respiratory rate by more than four breaths per minute. So that means that um, it, it, you didn't do something that resulted in better protection according to, the, to, to this proposal, to this suggestion. suggestion. So in this has very, it's very important to remember that every time you increase the respiratory rate, increase more and more, it becomes less and less efficient in terms of alveolar ventilation because tidal volume slowly approaches, approaches the, the dead space. Uh, and as a, consequence, as a consequence, if you think of that uh, four to one ratio, you can predict that there is, a, there is an optimal respiratory rate for each combination of, of BCO2, PCO2 in compliance. So we, we showed that in the paper. This, this is actually partly, these curves are not entirely empirical, they're part theoretical. These are called isocapnic curves. So it's just, um, it's, it's just sort of a mental experiment. If you want to, to keep the CO2 of the patient the same, what would happen if you increased, if you increased your tidal volume in a patient with very low compliance? So this patient has very low compliance. You will increase tidal volume up to a certain point. point. When you do that, you will decrease the respiratory rate, but then you come to a minimum. If you keep increasing tidal volume, the respiratory rate will keep, increase, keep decreasing, but it will no longer be, uh, be helpful be beyond that point. So, and, and what this graph shows is, is very interesting because it shows that the point of optimal respiratory rate or optimal tidal volume is different according to the mechanical properties of the system. For example, a patient with higher compliance of 35 will have, will probably be at a lower energy transfer at a, at a lower, at a compliance of 35 at a higher tidal volume and lower respiratory rate. With a compliance of 14 at a lower tidal volume and higher respiratory rate. So this is what the, the, that four to one ratio predicts. So, and you can even change that into a, you could do that into a theoretical formula that predicts the respiratory rate, the optimal respiratory rate, according to the CO2 production compliance and target CO2. And finally, what we did was a, a mediation, an, mediation analysis, um, and we found that both driving pressure and respiratory rates um, uh, were mediators of the effect of randomization on, on to a protective arm. So when the patient was randomized to lung protection, he would have a driving pressure uh, 2.7 centimeters of water lower, and that protected them from death with a nose ratio of 0.86. 
But this is this was actually very interesting. If the patient was randomized to the protective arm, he would have a respiratory rate that was higher um, because that wasn't the focus back then. So, and this um, was actually uh, uh, a competitive mediation. This reduction in driving pressure helped the patient and this increase in respiratory rate did not. Uh, and But overall, these two variables explained all the effect. You don't have to know whether the patient was randomized to the protective arm or to the control to understand what happened to, to, to the patient. Just look at what happened to his driving pressure and respiratory rate. Um, so this is analysis. analysis um, it's actually suggested that suggestive that the effect of the randomization could have been higher if, for example, in the protective arm, uh, the, the protocols would have allowed patients to for more permissive hypercapnia to avoid this increase in respiratory rate. Of course, this is just a speculation. So. Um, just, these are just my main messages. So uh, I think that uh, a target tidal volume according to ideal body weight, it's, it has been shown to be good on average uh, to patients, but uh, I think that it targets actually the size of the healthy lung, not of the baby lung. So um, I think that tidal volume should be individualized based on the mechanics of the respiratory system and driving pressure can help you do that. Uh, and driving pressure and respiratory rate together are equivalent to mechanical power uh, in terms of, of prediction of, of death. And it's of course uh, easier to, to implement at the bedside than that complex formula that I showed you before. So with this, uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm finished and I'm, I'll be very glad to take questions if there are any.